Hi, Professor Stanley here, and today we are going to talk about substance-related and addictive disorders, again, with a PowerPoint and podcast simultaneously recorded, so you may pull from either one. Um, Anyway, I wanted to go ahead and get started, and you know, this is not my field of expertise. Now, I do have quite a bit of experience with patients who have addictive disorders and substance use disorders, But that said, I wanted you to know that this is not my specialty area, and I certainly will ask Dr. Cook to fill in as needed in class for anything that I have not clearly spelled out through the presentation. Okay, let's go on. Commonality, (laughs) another disclaimer. I know that many of you have substance users in your family. Probably most of you know somebody in your family or as a friend who is a substance user, and this topic, because of that factor, because of the personal nature of it, can be rather hard to discuss. Many times, some form of denial may still persist, and you may find yourself just a bit defensive when we're talking about substance use, and a lot of you are going to want to say, well, no, no, that's not true of my person. It may be true of other people, but not of me. But that's okay. We're going to get through this, and come talk to me if you need to, okay? Let's go on. Okay, a few terms. Substance, when we're talking about substance substance use, refers to several classes of drugs that are known to act on the brain's reward system. And because they act on the brain's reward system, they are likely to be used for a purpose other than what they're intended. Or they may be ones that aren't even, doesn't even have an intended purpose and they're misused. Substance use disorder is the misuse of substances without regard to the negative consequences that can occur. Symptoms and behaviors common to individuals with substance use disorder include, they can have cognitive symptoms, behavioral, physiological symptoms. There is a desire to reduce use, but a difficulty in doing so. There is need for greater and greater amounts of the substance to achieve the same purpose. There is neglect of normal activities due to a focus on obtaining or using more. There is a persistent desire or craving for the substance. It results in substance use disorder. It results in impaired control, social impairment, risky use, and physical effects such as intoxication, tolerance, and withdrawal. Now, you may have also heard of addiction or addiction disorder, which is an active disease state where there is chronic and relapsing disease depicted by compulsive drug seeking and use in spite of harmful consequences that involve neurochemical and molecular brain changes. It is no longer applied as a diagnostic term, however. Instead, the DSM now uses the term substance use disorder. So there are many different types of drugs that people may use. Um, Designer drugs are chemical compounds similar to other drugs, but slightly different in chemical structure. And they can, and they're produced illegally and often have a more serious and potent effect. An example of this would be K2, which is a synthetic form of marijuana. Um, it's probably not too much classified as a designer drug because it's not one of those fancy things such as ecstasy, but it would be an example of one that has um, a similar chemical structure but very much more deleterious effects than marijuana usually does. Abstinence is when somebody refrains from use of drugs. So if you abstain from alcohol, if you abstain from sex, you are refraining from their use. Recovery is when the individual no longer engages in in the substance of behaviors, substance, when using the substance or behaviors that are associated with its use. Intoxication is when people in the process of using a substance to excess under the influence, intoxicated or high are all terms that you may be familiar with. And the term depends upon the substance that's being used, but it's people that are in the process of using the substance to excess. Tolerance is, okay, now tolerance occurs when your body no longer responds to the drug in the same way. So basically it takes more to do the same. So you think about alcohol, And if you have a drink of alcohol and you have one beer, you might get a slight buzz from it the first time. After a while, three or four beers may give you the same buzz you used to get from one. So that's an example of tolerance that has developed over time. Okay, can also be process addictions, and these are different types of addictions. So we have drug and alcohol addictions, of course, but there can also be process addictions where there's no substance involved but it's related to a behavior or feeling that's brought about by relative actions, such as gambling, 
gaming, social media, shopping, and sexual activity all activate the reward pathway and act in the, on the brain very similarly to substances. But there can be other addictions as well, okay? So I hope that kind of helps. I know it's kind of a little bit out of order, but I just wanted you to have a good vocabulary going for when we talk about what we're talking about. A few more turns. Compulsively. <clears throat> Those are behaviors or habitual acts that continue despite a potential for adverse consequences. Cravings are a compelling drive for previously experienced positive or euphoric effects of a psychoactive substance, often increases with stressors, perceived substance availability, both internal and external cues. So I'll give you an example. You know, sometimes I'll have patients that come to my unit that are meth users, and when they get to where they're just about to be discharged, they start to become very irritable and very anxious, and they have, like, hyper, um, hyper-exaggerated movements, usually because it's that they're anticipating that they can leave and then go out and use the substance, and so they start to become, you know, very anxious to do so. That would be an example of a craving. Dependence. is the body's physical need for a substance. There are substances that you become dependent upon, such as alcohol. If you drink, then it comes to a point that you don't function well without it, and it can actually cause deleterious effects by its absence. Cessation can result in withdrawal due to dependence. So if you have a cessation from alcohol, you will often, or most of the time, have a withdrawal, which are signs and symptoms that result from abrupt discontinuation. Now, these can be resolved. They do take some time, and they do take considerable pain from the individual. Um, Many of the people who are withdrawing suffer quite a bit, but they can be withdrawn. Then there can be sobriety, which emerges, which is a continued abstinence in conjunction with satisfactory quality of life. Unfortunately, with sobriety, there can also be relapses where there is a return to symptoms after stabilization, And they may result from cues, context, and stressors previously associated with use. So, for example, let's say that you've stopped using alcohol and you have a really, really stressful time in your life. Somebody dies, something's going on, and then you start to, like, you are at a bar. You happen to be passing a bar where you used to go get drunk and you're under all this stress. You might then start stop at the bar and relapse. Impulsivity is a predisposition towards rapid, unplanned reaction to internal or external stimuli without the regard for negative consequences. I think we've already talked about impulsivity quite a bit this semester, but remember, it is that um, rapid, unplanned reaction that's more impulsive in nature. Impulsivity. Then there's detoxation, detoxification, sorry, and that is safely and effectively withdrawing from an addictive substance. And many times when we have patients who are using alcohol or drugs, uh, detoxification period can be very helpful as they withdraw from the substance and can actually keep from them keep them from having effects that could harm them quite significantly. All right, so just a little bit about drugs and alcohol. 53% of American citizens report drinking alcohol. 23% report being binge drinkers, which is five drinks on one occasion on one day in the last month. So that's about a quarter. 6.5% drink heavily. 26.7% of Americans use alcohol. 9% of the population has a substance use disorder. And 10% used an illicit substance in the last month. Now, marijuana, pain relievers, and cocaine were the most frequently dependent or abused drugs reported. Um, see, I kind of wondered about this. I put meth in Oklahoma because I see meth a lot more commonly than cocaine. So I'm wondering if these are like national averages because I think that our meth problem here is higher than our cocaine problems. I was going to say that usually drug use is twice as high in men than it is in women. And they can be done in several routes. You can take it by mouth, which may be capsule. It could be liquid. It could be a tablet. It could be, you know, sublingual technically would be a mouth route as well. You can inject it, either IM or IV. Um, Smoking or inhaling can be something that you can do. Snorting. And smoking and injection are the fastest routes delivering the drugs most quickly and as such are much more addictive than other routes. And your route may change as tolerance develops because obviously if something is not working as well, you want to make it more bioavailable. 
So if you think about it, when you go through the mouth, you're going to have to go down the esophagus and into the stomach and have the digestion occur. And then the drug will pass in the bloodstream, but of course it's gonna be processed in the liver and not as much of the drug may be bioavailable for effect as it is if it goes another route. You can inject it. In fact, um, a lot of these may become in a hard form and a lot of people will, you'll see them place it on a spoon and pass a lighter underneath it to melt it. And then they'll draw it up in an IV needle and inject it into their veins. Now, of course, this can have a number of problems because you have many drug users. First of all, it's hard to get clean needles without a prescription. So you may have people reusing needles. You may have some sort of contaminant from this substance that has been melted. And as it's injected in the bloodstream, you're doing the most direct route. So if there is a potential for any sort of like overdose, it can occur very easily, like for example, with heroin. And um, so it can have a lot of problems. You know, obviously these substances are very bad for the body and you're putting it into the bloodstream with maybe unclean procedures. And it's a pretty scary sort of route that you're taking on. Smoking or inhaling, obviously, if you have asthma or something of that nature, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, this route would be something that could cause significant damage. Sublingual is under the tongue. Snorting could cause damage to the nasal mucosa and but it is a faster route of absorption but anyway you may like i said you may change the forms as tolerance develops if you are interested there is a series out on netflix and i find it somewhat disturbing i watched a few episodes and i can tell you i learned a lot from it but there is a um episode out on or a series out on netflix called nurse jackie which traces a nurse with her struggle with addiction and as the scene opens, you see Nurse Jackie laying on the floor, and she says, what do you call a nurse with a bad back? And she's laying on the floor, and she says, unemployed. And so she takes an opioid, and she gets up, and she goes about her, her day. And as she does so, she manipulates throughout the day to get different forms of the drug and has def a definite use disorder. Okay, let's go on to the next page. <clears throat> Alcohol. Alcohol is one of the most commonly abused drugs. In fact, it's probably the common, most commonly abused. Um, it is a central nervous system depressant, so it produces dose-dependent changes in cognitive and motor functioning. What that means is the more you drink, the worse your brain and body react. It can cause, and I'm sure this comes as no surprise to you if you've ever seen somebody who's using alcohol, an impaired coordination which is a loss of fine and gross motor control. So hand-eye coordination and balance, that's when you see the police officers that may ask somebody to walk on a line and you know move your finger, touch the tip of your nose. It also causes an impaired reaction time, changes in speech, impaired cognition and judgment. And so obviously this is why you don't want to drive when you've been drinking because of this loss of motor control and the impaired reaction time. You can really, and the judgment cognition too, you can really have a difficult time operating a motor vehicle when you've been drinking and that's why it's illegal and will get you into big trouble. When you withdraw from alcohol, it can be extremely life-threatening. This is the one that can actually make you die when you're withdrawing from it. Withdrawal causes increased cardiac stress, an elevated blood pressure, elevated pulse, sweating, nausea and vomiting, GI distress, and diarrhea, those are all parts of GI distress, frequent urination, and even lead to hallucinations, memory loss, decreased concentration, and seizures. So typically, you know, you're going to see them progress in severity where you're going to start out with like some fine motor tremors, you know, elevated blood pressure, elevated pulse, and profuse sweating, and a little bit of nausea and vomiting. And then later signs are going to be that hallucination, decreased concentration, and seizures, and all of that. You will have an increased frequency of the vital signs, so it's very important with alcohol withdrawal that we monitor this very closely. In fact, we do a uh, Q4-hour screening of vital signs on the psychiatric unit when somebody's withdrawing from alcohol. And the big thing with this is you don't want to wait until symptoms have progressed. You want to medicate early and often because it is much easier to stay on top of the symptoms rather than behind them. So what I mean by that is if somebody's starting to have those symptoms of elevator blood pressure and pulse, I want to treat it as soon as possible and get that under, under control because it can really escalate quick and that's when you have those potentially fatal symptoms. Now, let me also say that it's very important that we screen our patients for alcohol use because 
You may have patients in the med, med surge unit who are used to drinking every day, and if you do, there is a high potential for withdrawal. So most medical surgical floors where they're admitting patients to the hospital now will actually screen patients to make sure that they aren't using with the alcohol on a very daily frequent basis because we don't want them to go through withdrawal when they're already struggling with illnesses and we want to either give medications or even sometimes you will see on a regular medical floor people prescribed alcoholic beverages as a treatment. We are going to monitor when we have a patient who comes in drunk to the emergency room we're going to monitor the blood alcohol level. Um, I will tell you in our psychiatric unit, they must have a blood alcohol level under 200 because anything higher than that is dangerous for us to have them on the psychiatric unit. And we're going to work to maintain their hydration level and to monitor for any allergic reactions. Now I had this little table here in, our, in another book that told me that the shaking and jitters usually will begin about six to eight hours after cessation. The watching, and you're going to be watching for hallucinations and changes in mentation about 8 to 10 hours after the last drink. Psychosis is an emergency and it is likely to proceed to the unconsciousness, seizures, and delirium. So remember I told you how you want to stay on top of the symptoms. So what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to look for the shaking that's going to begin and the nausea and vomiting and all of that. And you know, we're going to give things for that. We're going to give some lithium, I'm sorry strike that librium lithium is the different drug we're going to give some librium to these individuals who are suffering from alcohol withdrawal we might be using clonidine to take care of the blood pressure we might be using some visteril for the anxiety that's going to be produced and we're going to probably also use some um, like uh, zofran or something like that for the nausea and vomiting that's occurring now, let me just kind of give you, there is a really good book that I have, and it has like a um, alcohol intoxication guideline. It says, the legal definition of intoxication in most states requires a blood concentration of 80 or 100 milligrams of ethanol per deciliter of blood. This concentration may also be expressed as 0.08 to 0.10 grams per deciliter. Signs and symptoms of alcohol intoxication are based on blood alcohol are. 20 milligrams per deciliter is two alcoholic drinks, which slows the motor performance, causes decreased thinking, alters mood, and reduced ability to multitask. 50, or three alcoholic drinks, causes impaired judgment, exaggerated behavior, euphoria, and lower alertness. 80 is four alcoholic drinks, causes poor muscle coordination, altered speech and hearing, difficulty detecting danger, impaired judgment, poor self-control, and decreased reasoning. 100 milligrams per deciliter or five alcohol drinks causes slurred speech, poor coordination, and slowed thinking. 150 milligrams per deciliter is six alcoholic drinks causing vomiting unless there's a really high tolerance and a major loss of balance. 200 milligrams per deciliter or eight to 10 alcoholic beverages causes memory blackouts, nausea, and vomiting. 300 milligrams per deciliter is more than 10 and this causes a reduction of body temperature, blood pressure, respiratory rate, sleepiness, and amnesia. So this is where we start to get really dangerous. Over 400 milligrams per deciliter, we have impaired vital signs and possible death. Of course, the intoxication is based on a number of factors, including how quickly the alcohol is consumed. So for example, someone that's doing jello shots can um, actually consume a great deal very quickly before they notice any results. Quicker ingestion results in higher levels of blood alcohol. In the United States, a standard drink is one that contains 14 grams of pure alcohol. The amount is found in 12 ounces of beer with 5% alcohol content, 5 ounces of wine with 12% alcohol content, 1.5 ounces of distilled spirits with 40% alcohol content. And I believe there is a picture in your book that has like the different levels of what that is. So... Just kind of wanted to give you that because it kind of helps you to understand what blood alcohol levels you're looking for in your patients that could be very difficult to deal with. Now, and we already talked about it, 8 to 10 hours, you're watching for those hallucinations because they can lead to unconsciousness, seizures, and delirium. Seizures are possible usually about 12 to 24 hours after cessation of the last drink. To treat alcohol, we're usually going to give Librium, 
equilibrium or Ativan if the liver enzymes are elevated. For some reason, my physicians that tend to treat patients, if they have uh, AST and ALT elevations and they're quite significant or low platelets also, then they're going to go with the Ativan. And I'm not sure why that is. I guess it's easier on, you know, the liver, but it can be given oral or IM, by the way. And we give, a, we give a lot of benzos. And so when I talk about Librium, we're going to be giving some pretty high doses that would kill you or I if we're not used to drinking. But for these patients, it's okay because they've developed that tolerance over time. But it may initially make you a bit uncomfortable to be giving that much. Alcohol and benzos, by the way, let me just announce this again. I'm not sure if I went over this in my benzodiazepine lecture or not. But alcohol and benzos used concurrently are a deadly combo because both are central nervous system depressions, depressants. So when we give our patient benzos, we, are, you know, we need to educate them, and for any of the psychiatric medications, we need to educate them that psych drugs and alcohol are not a good combo, and they can affect the respiratory drive. So there's something important to remember in patient education. Benzos and alcohol are a deadly combination. <clears throat> okay, moving right along. Okay. Not only can alcohol cause problems in the short term, but it can cause some problems in very big ones in the long term. You can develop peripheral neuropathy due to nutritional deficiencies like thiamine. And this is going to, of course, be numbness, weakness, sensitivity to touch, and burning. It's going to be those same types of things you see with diabetes. If you DC the alcohol use, though, the symptoms won't get any worse. They'll just stay where they are. You can have myopathy, which is weakness, muscle damage. And recovery is possible, but it may take a very long time. You can imagine somebody starts to feel really weak. That might be something that uh, really affects their ability to function. Cardiomyopathy. Now, this is pretty dangerous, where the alcohol will weaken and thin the heart muscle and lead to an enlargement and eventually possible heart failure. And, of course, you know, that's when you're going to be looking for that swelling that occurs with, like, congestive heart failure. Um... Now, here's some other things. Esophagitis, think about that. You've got the alcohol going down the esophagus, winding up in the stomach, pancreatitis, alcohol hepatitis, because remember, it's processed in the liver, and cirrhosis of the liver. And once the liver is damaged, you can have the white blood cell problems of leukopenia because of the liver damage. You can also have a decreased platelet count, which is called thrombocytopenia, from the liver damage, which makes you more prone to bleeding disorders. And all of your cancers that are related to drinking, you have to think about this route. Esophagitis, esophagus, gastritis, stomach. So think about that. So I kind of wanted to trace the path because remember, this is the pathway the alcohol is taking. So all of that damage can be done in this pathway that the alcohol takes through the body. There can also be something called wernicke korkoff syndrome, which basically is another name for some brain problems that can occur with alcohol use. And so I just wanted to point that out. I'm not going to go over that in great detail, but it is it can occur, and it is quite problematic when it does. You can have some uh, decreased gray matter that will occur as a result of alcohol, which is like some alcohol encephalopathy. You can have blackouts, and also there can be something called fetal alcohol syndrome, which is a leading cause of intellectual disability, especially during pregnancy. And let me just back up with a warning course, Wernicke Korsakoff. People with a heavy use of alcohol for many years may suffer from short-term memory dis disturbances. One memory-reducing problem is this one, the Wernicke's, which is encephalopathy, and it, acute, it is acute and reversible. Another problem is the Korsakoff's, which is chronic with a recovery rate of only about 20%. And this is actually um, a thiamine deficiency which causes it, and it may be caused by poor nutrition associated with alcohol use or by malabsorption of the nutrients related to that. The Wernicke's is characterized by an altered gait, vestibular dysfunction, confusion, and several ocular motility abnormalities like nystagmus, um, palsy, and gaze palsy. So anyway, so there are some different things that can occur, and I think you can see these usually in a CT scan for diagnosis, and then obviously the cognitive impairments that will occur could be neuropsych tested as well. Fetal alcohol syndrome is a leading cause of intellectual disability and it occurs when alcohol is consumed during pregnancy. What happens with fetal alcohol, and there you can look up and read about the different times during pregnancy that you have different risks for fetal development abnormalities, but you have facial abnormalities where a smooth area between the nose, and, there produces a smooth area between the nose and the upper lip, 
which is thinner than normal, small eyes, and a smaller than normal head. So you can read about those on that page. And if you look it up on the internet, you can find some pictures of some individuals who have been afflicted by FAS. One of the things that happens with FAS is poor growth. There's a lower than average weight or height and central nervous system abnormalities. So there's a, present of, there's a presence of structural or functional and or neurobiological abnormalities. And often it's a combination of these three types of abnormalities that is pre- present within these children. So what do you think results as a result of that? And you're probably right if you're thinking that they have some problems with learning and different things like that. So, okay. I'm sure you're going to go over that more in like child development, so I probably won't spend a lot of time on that. Let's go to meth. Meth is a big problem in Oklahoma. It is huge. There are certain areas of Oklahoma that if I get a call from their emergency room, I almost always know the patients are coming in with meth, and they're close by. So meth can be snorted. It can be injected. It can be smoked, or it can be oral. It causes an increase in temperature, heart rate, and blood pressure, so you're not seeing quite the same sorts of things as you would with alcohol. But they are going to spread, sweat profusely sometimes, have a loss of appetite, sometimes experience sleeplessness initially, have a dry mouth, tremors, and can have fatal dysrhythmias. Eventually, when they start to withdraw a little bit, they'll sleep for days. So what we're going to do is we're going to encourage them to rest, monitor their hydration, offer food in small amounts, limit the stimulation, all of these things to kind of decrease that sort of, you know, hyperstimulation they're having because it is a stimulant. And we're going to administer meds to relieve the symptoms. Like I said, they tend to sleep for days. Um, some other things are, it's that a big problem in rural Oklahoma, and they can blow up their home or their duplex cooking meth. I've heard before that if somebody cooks meth in a house, that that house is pretty much ruined forever because of the toxins that are resulting. So you can imagine what it does to the body. They can become very psychotic and delusional, and the delusions can be fixed so that they don't go away. Like a lot of my meth patients will go, and it's kind of funny, they go kind of go in waves. But um, like a couple of years ago, everyone that came in that had been doing meth thought that the government had put an implant in their system, and they were, that the government was listening in through this implant. And so that was part of the reason that they would pick at the meth sores that would occur. The meth sores tend to occur when they do the injectable form because of the chemicals as it goes through the body. And so it would cause these changes in the skin and they'll pick at it and they'll do that excoriation disorder type stuff. And so they'll have all these open sores on them. Well, back then, a lot of them would think that, you know, oh, I've got to pick this out. There's something the government's got underneath my skin and that's what they would say they were doing. Um, One of my fellows, the one that comes in and tells me that he's pregnant all the time, he is a chronic meth user, and his delusion has now become fixed. I mean, there's really not much that we're going to do about it. No combination of meds is going to take the delusion away. We can clear up some of the psychotic thought content and some of the paranoia, but the delusions do tend to come to sometimes be fixed. So meth is a really sad one because a lot of times it affects people's life extremely adversely. They, um, they have a difficult time. It's one of the hardest drugs to stop. And they tend to just really relapse very quickly and not have a lot of motivation to get off the meth. And it can cause very significant changes in appearance. You know, usually if they have all their teeth, then they haven't been using meth for very long because it takes their teeth, it takes their skin. It makes them look, you know, very like gaunt and, and just some real changes in what they look like. When they come to the ER and they're on meth, they're, they're what's called tweaking. With They have these like involuntary muscle contractions that'll occur and tongue protrusions. So I tried to look up a video of somebody tweaking, but I couldn't find one. But I'm, when you see it, you'll know it. So, all right, let's go on. And, you know, there's no actual like physical addiction to meth in the same way that there is to other ones. But because it so acts upon the reward pathway, they have a this dependence upon meth because of that. Opioids. Yeah, I know you guys are all familiar with the opioid crisis, the term opioid crisis. A few years ago, they used to tell us um, in nursing that we needed to treat, pain was our vital sign as well, and we needed to treat every instance of pain, and that opioids, you know, you wouldn't develop a physical dependence upon them, and so people started, like, prescribing high amounts. It's usually oral, but it can be crushed, snorted, or injected. 
already told you about Nurse Jackie. Go watch it. She'll show you many different ways to use it. It includes heroin, which can be the most dangerous um, or the strongest of the prescription opioids. And lately there's been, I didn't put it on here because it's probably before after the textbook was written, but we are seeing heroin with fentanyl. And that's actually the one that some providers are getting dosed through the skin. Now, let me tell you, when it comes to opioids, a lot of people that are on that are chronic opioid users can handle doses of the medication that would kill you or me. And the reason is because they built up such a tolerance that it would kill one of us to actually take that medication. And so if you have somebody who has been using heroin with fentanyl and you're getting dosed through the skin, it can kill you because of the fact that you're not used to high levels of opioids. They are controlled under Oklahoma state law. In fact, anybody that comes in to get a prescription opioid now, the doctor is going to pull a PMP and make sure that nobody else has been prescribing it to that patient. And remember, I think I've already told you this year that we can no longer prescribe opioids and benzos because of the combined effect of these types of sedatives. It does provide powerful pain relief that precipitates feelings of euphoria, which is why patients use it. Patients may appear sluggish. They may have constricted pupils, delayed reflexes, slowed or slurred speech, decreased respirations, decreased blood pressure, and decreased pulse. In your simulations here, <coughs> excuse me, in your simulation scenarios, we are going to do an opioid withdrawal. So you should be able to recognize these symptoms from that patient. You're going to develop a tolerance, as I've already said, with, which will decrease the effectiveness over time, unless you use more and more. And this is a chronic relapsing disorder, and it does result in significant, significant life impairment. Withdrawal will include mood dysphoria, which are intense feelings of depression or discontent, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, muscle aches, fever, insomnia, watery eyes, runny nose, pupil dilation, yawning and piloerection, which is a bristling of the hairs, and goose flex, which is why they say somebody went cold turkey because of the goose flesh. Okay, hold on, let me take a drink of water. Withdrawal symptoms usually start about six to eight hours after the last dose. Death can result from an overdose. And it can be treated with an antagonist to that, which is Narcan. But treatment will focus on also on maintaining the airway by aspirating the secretions and putting the patient on mechanical ventilation. So you're going to give the Narcan, but you're also going to maybe intubate that patient and make sure that their airway is maintained because obviously this can cause a great deal of respiratory depression. Methadone is something that is a synthetic narcotic opioid. It decreases pain, but doesn't have the same euphoric effect. So many times for these chronic pain patients, methadone may be an option for them where they can actually get doses of methadone to help with their pain. Suboxone, or bu- bu- I can't even say that generic name, will also help people to reduce or quit. And it has weaker effects of euphoria or respiratory depression. So we are going to use this actually to taper patients off of opioids if they've been taking them. Usually after about 12 to 24 hours is when the taper will be used. I think we're at 18 hours on my unit. They have to last use, you know, 18 hours ago. It can bring on acute withdrawal in the early stages of opioid withdrawal. So we don't want to give it to them early because it can bring on acute withdrawal. It is long acting and can be given later as a daily or alternative daily dosing. So Suboxone is a really good thing to help somebody withdraw from opioids and not have to suffer through the intense withdrawal symptoms. Most patients aren't going to die from opioid withdrawal. They're just going to wish they were dead because it's so unpleasant. Now, Trexone is also an opioid antagonist and can help with dependence by blocking the euphoric and sedative effects of the drug. So, all right, let's go on to the next one. Naltrexone is also known as um, Revia, by the way. That's another name for it. Cocaine. Uh, This is one of my least favorites because cocaine can cause some pretty big heart problems. It is can be snorted, smoked, or injected, and a short. It is a short-acting stimulant. Abusers may binge many times in a single session. Gives them a quick high. It can have severe medical consequences, as I've already alluded to, on the heart, the respiratory, the nervous system, and the digestive system. Causes profound weight loss if they use it over time, and can delay fatigue. Individuals may appear depressed, 
violent, confused, or anxious. And it causes a disturbed sleep cycle, irritability, and restlessness. Now, I will say with cocaine, unlike some of the other drugs, it does not produce the same type of dependence. But, of course, it can be psychologically dependent, but it's not like an opioid or alcohol. Okay, marijuana. Probably a lot of you have used this or know people that do because it is becoming very commonplace, especially since medical marijuana has recently become legal in the state of Oklahoma. Many people will smoke, inhale, or cook it in food. It does have potentially harmful side effects that can cause permanent brain damage, and it produces relaxation, thirst, euphoria, psychosis, increased craving for food, dry mouth, enhanced vision, memory impairment, and giddiness. Those are all side effects. Now, I will let you know that some people use this for very good medical uses. I know a woman who for years had seizures and she had trouble taking the Keppra and Depakote and all of those, but she was able to experience relief from her seizures with marijuana. So there is a medical use, but withdrawal from it can include muscle tension, memory loss, respiratory distress, cardiac problems, rage, euphoria, belligerence, and assaulted behavior. I will let you know that dissociative states and audiovisual hallucinations can result from marijuana use. I've seen it quite frequently. And we are going to observe our patients for smoking-related issues and injuries and monitor the respiratory and cough reflexes and system because of the fact that they are smoking the substance to ingest it, right, or to get it into their system. Now, when we have patients who are very psychotic, We should warn them not to be taking it with their antipsychotics because, as I said, psychosis can result, and it kind of tends to undo the effects of the antipsychotics. So, okay, moving right along. Inhalants. Inhalants make me very sad because most of the time when I see people that are abusing inhalants, they have some significant cognitive impairment. It can be huffed or it can be inhaled and includes gas, brake cans, solvents for glue, or thinners, paint thinners. It can cause profound changes in the sensorium and can cause respiratory depression and death. Spray can be used to huff and can cause fatalities. And like I said, it causes cardiac and respiratory issues. And patients just seem to not be able to function very well when they've been on inhalants. There tends to be an inability to make really good, like any sort of life decisions. Um, Some of them have been so impaired to the point at which they almost have like a toddler-like kind of mentality. Okay, hallucinogens. They cause a profound disturbance in reality. They, They have flashbacks, panic attacks, psychosis, delirium, mood and anxiety disorders can all be a consequence of the use of hallucinogens. They are found in plants, mushrooms, or man-made. One of my, I've had a couple of patients who've come in who've used some hallucinogens and even using them on a more limited basis has caused severe problems. One of my patients was a very brilliant college student who had attended a prestigious university back east and he had even made like significant contributions to his field. Uh, It was a scientific type of field even before he was out of his undergrad degree. Well, over spring break, he had used some hallucinogens And when he came in, he was acutely psychotic. And while we did get him cleared up, we could not get him cleared up all the way. Some paranoia tended to, you know, reside. Hopefully it'll clear up after time. But it was very sad to see this young man with all this potential who had so much, you know, hurt his life. Another patient that I had, probably a little personality disordered as well, but and maybe some bipolar. But she came in and she had been, she told me she'd been dropping some acid. And she was so impaired that we had to encourage her mother to pursue guardianship because she was in a continuous danger to not take her medication and a danger to herself. Now, classic hallucinogens are LSD, and then there are also dissociative hallucinogens like PCP and ketamine. Intoxication causes significant psychiatric and behavioral changes, including impaired judgment, paranoia, intensification of perception, depersonalization, remember that from our dissociative lecture, and derealization. You can also have something very unique in this, which is called, see if I can pronounce this right, synesthesis, which is hearing colors and seeing sounds. PCP is a, um, not a classic one, but a dissociative type of hallucinogen. It causes dangerous and violent side effects. Let me tell you why. When these PCP patients come on the unit, they can be very difficult to deal with. It makes them belligerent, assaultive, impulsive, and unpredictable. 
These are the ones who sometimes you'll hear about police reports where they get superhuman strength. They cannot be talked down, and they may require restraint and benzodiazepines until the drug is out of their system, and possibly even cooling mechanically due to the hyperthermia that can result. Then there's something that can cause that it can cause a persisting perception disorder where there's a re-experiencing of perceptual symptoms that can result from hallucinogen use. Tobacco. Although I know that it's not, you don't think of it as a drug, it still is, as is caffeine. So read up on caffeine in your book. Tobacco can cause craving, persistent and recurrent use and tolerance. It does take more over time. Dependence happens quickly and cigarettes are the most common. 13% is the prevalence rate. I think that's contradictory to another statistic I quoted at one point. Hmm, maybe it's two different books. Maybe that's why. Anyway, most people begin doing it before they're 18. Withdrawal can produce irritability, anxiety, depression, trouble concentrating, restlessness, and insomnia. And let me tell you, all of our patients on the psychiatric unit usually get a patch, but they're usually pretty mad about having to not have their tobacco. Within days after stopping tobacco, the heart rate will decrease by 12 beats per minute, and the weight will increase 4 to 7 pounds in the first year. So that's pretty significant that the heart rate will decrease that much within just a few days. Behavioral therapy, hypnosis, and nicotine replacement can all help a patient stop using tobacco. And clonidine will decrease sympathetic activity. And Chantix helps to ease symptoms and blocks the nicotine. So let me tell you right now, um, tobacco is one thing that is measured by the Joint Commission because it can have, number one, a lot of our patients smoke. And number two, it can exacerbate some other symptoms. And number three, you know, it's just not good for them. So we do get that monitored by the Joint Commission as to whether or not we've done tobacco education and provided a prescription for tobacco products upon discharge. That is one of our core measures. Okay. Now, it is a little different than a drug addiction. And again, we're going to use gambling as a type of addiction. But remember that we can have several things that are in this other addiction category. Gambling, video games, sex. Gambling in particular can be bad because it causes economic issues and disturbs the person's personal, social, and occupational functioning. When a person is addicted to gambling, there's a preoccupation with the behavior experience and increasingly there is a desire to gamble and they will lie to conceal the extent of their gambling. They may commit an illegal acts to finalize the addiction and they may rely on others to pay off their debts. Stress and depression increase the behavior, so that's your trigger, and Gamblers Anonymous also is available for them, and it's a 12-step program to stop gambling. You can use some medications like SSRIs, Wellbutrin, mood stabilizers like lithium, and anticonvulsants like Topamax to help, and second-generation antipsychotics can also help as well as naltrexone. Now, I've had some patients who've been significantly impaired due to gambling. I had one lady who came in, and she was just darling. She was a sweet lady. And she was having suicidal thoughts. And I found out that she was an LPN. And she had spent both of her last two paychecks gambling and didn't have anything to pay rent. And she had parents who probably would loan her the money, but she was deeply embarrassed. And because of all of this, she felt like harming herself. I had another patient who came in who was a compulsive gambler. And I think he came in to hide out more than anything else. And he had some delusional thinking related to his addiction he told me that he had made a deal with the devil at one point and ever since that time he'd had hallucinations that were telling him that they were coming for him um another one of my actually a nurse that i work with was also addicted to gambling she had spent over two hundred thousand dollars of her own money and i talked to her one day and she was on her way to the casino and she said yeah, I do. I gamble the big machines. You know, I don't gamble the, 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 the small ones. I gamble like the $10 machines, you know. I don't make anything back until I spend at least $1,500. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could never imagine spending $1,500 on gambling. But it's such an addiction and it causes, you know, so much difficulty in the life of that person. <clears throat> okay. Addiction. So let's just talk a little bit about addiction, shall we? Um... When we have addictions, there is a neglect of health that is simultaneous with the side effects of the substance. So, you know, remember, you are having these cardiovascular symptoms and possible respiratory symptoms and possible infections from the meth that's being injected or whatever. 
But patients who are suffering from addictions will neglect their health at the same time as they're taking the substance that is giving them health problems. So you can imagine when they come in, they have a variety of health problems. Addictions are often developed in response to stressors and events like trauma, deteriorating relationships, and mental illnesses. It is a comorbidity with almost every mental illness, but especially like bipolar, schizophrenia, many of the big ones have addiction associated with it. Remember my young man that I talked about in my schizophrenia lecture, who told me he hears 35 voices and 32 of them are a-holes and he drinks to shut them up. They, a lot of these people will self-medicate rather than taking the drugs that we prescribed. Denial will often accompany addiction, denial of the person and denial of their family, and it is profound and may prevent an individual from realistically examining the consequences of their action. Many times feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, and anxiety and suicide may all surface because people feel guilt and shame and have depression that's associated with shame when they're addicted. They may find that they're ostracized by people around them and labeled, and so they have an inability to feel positive in any one of their domains of health. They may be separated from their spiritual health. They may have physical health that's bad because of the addiction. They may have problems with the community. I mean, you see why all the domains would be affected. Now, not only is the addict, effect, addict affected, but also their family. Sorry, I'd take a drink of water. There is this cycle of codependency that does occur, and this is when a lot of my students tend to enter into denial because it is difficult to admit. Consequences that are associated with continued use almost always have a financial or legal consequence as the substance begins to take increasing priority in the life of the individual that is afflicted. I know a young man who is, you know, he's a brilliant young man. He has a language degree from the college, and his substance use has left him very depressed, and he has not been able to hold down a job. He's living with his father. As he has used this substance, he's stolen from his sister. He's stolen from his brother. They won't even come around anymore. The father is getting elderly, and I'm really worried for what will happen with this young man once his father dies, but his father is his codependent. He's allowing the cycle to continue. The family members may feel unable to confront the individual and may engage in behaviors which support the use of the substance. So an example would be the father of this young man who doesn't, he says this boy suffers from depression, so he doesn't feel like, you know, he can't make it on his own, so he needs my help. And so he went out and he bought him a car, which the young man wrecked, and so then he took him, he gave him his car, or he takes him places. So, codependents may feel unable to confront the individual and may engage in behaviors which are supporting the use of the substance. You know, they may actually even go out and buy it for them. Codependents may allow for the use of substance, keep secrets about their drug use, and tolerate behaviors that int intimidating are dangerous. So, an example would be this father who still has the son that's living in his home, and he's tolerating this young man to you know, use drugs and still come home and he's tolerating the young man stealing from his brother and sister and thinking of it, you know, he thinks it's an illness, but at the same time, he's tolerating the behavior and not allowing the young man to experience the consequences of it. These behaviors may enable the individual to continue to abuse drugs. And you can think about why this may occur, because if you have somebody in your life who you love very deeply, because this is based probably in some love, if you love them very deeply, then, you know, you just want to protect them from harm, and you can't seem to do that. But when they fail to address the behavior of the individual who is using, they are engaging in codependency. In other words, the family is dependent upon the maladaptive behaviors, just like the person is dependent upon the drug. This particular family, the father had lost his wife. The young man began using drugs after his mother's death. And I think the father is afraid to you to lose the young man lose the young man as well. And I also think he's maybe a little afraid to be alone. The hallmark of codependency. This is the hallmark, pay attention. The hallmark of codependency is shielding the other person from the consequences of their action. So if your family member were to go out and get drunk and they were to have a DUI or hurt somebody in an accident. Would you go bail them out of jail? In some ways, you're shielding them from the full consequences of their action if you do that. 
Other behaviors that may be engaged in by codependents may be controlling behaviors and caretaking behaviors. So if you feel the need to go around and take care of somebody and, you know, protect them for the consequences of their actions or maybe even control their actions, then you may be a codependent. Codependents will often lie for the individual to protect that individual from the outside world. An example would be a child who somebody calls and he says, my mom is sick, she's sleeping right now, when in reality she's been using drugs and she's either high or drunk or whatever. In recovery, a higher power is viewed as a power outside the person that is greater than the individual. And so when it's codependency, they have their own 12-step program where they're also relying on a higher power to help give them the strength to do it. Okay, hang on here. Let's go to the next slide. Here's the 12 steps. In the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's similar for the other um, codependency steps as well, or any of the illnesses that we do a 12-step program for, in the 12 steps, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. So that's that denial. They're first counteracting the denial. We came to believe that a power that was greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So they believed in a higher power and they made a decision to turn their will and their lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Then, after they've done the denial and they've turned to God to help them with their illness, they made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. For example, that young man that I told you about, if he made the searching and fearless moral inventory, he might talk about the time that he stole from his sister and his brother and how he wrecked the car and all of the pain that he's caused to others. Then they admit to God and to themselves and to another human being, usually maybe their sponsor or somebody like that, someone who understands or their counselor. So they're going to admit to the exact nature of their wrongs. Once they've done that, they are, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So they're like, okay, you know, I've admitted to my wrongs and I want these things gone. And they're asking God to remove their shortcomings. At that point, they make a list of all the people that they've ever harmed. And if it's okay to make amends to them, then they can do it. But if it's going to harm them, they're not going to do that. So they made a list and became willing to make amends. Then they made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So, for example, this young man that I was telling you about may go to his brother and sister and tell them, you know what, I was suffering from an addiction and I stole from you, and I know that that was so wrong, and I can't ever possibly make up for it. Could you please forgive me? I want to restore to you what I took from you if I can. Then they continue to take a personal inventory. So they continue this process of emotional reality where they're searching and fearless, making a moral inventory always of themselves. And when they're wrong, they're going to get to where they promptly admit that they're wrong. Then they seek through prayer and meditation to improve their conscious contact with God as they understand him. It's a type of mindfulness, praying for his knowledge of his will and for the power to carry it out. And then finally, having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, they've tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So you can see how this, the 12-step program is a process, and they may go back and forth between the different steps many, many times. Okay, I think that's the end of my discussion. So I'm going to end there and tell you there's probably more that we're going to cover in class. As you can see, this is a lengthy topic and there is a lot to cover. So I just wanted to get as much as I could on this and we'll talk more about it in class. Thank you for listening.